It's Tuesday, October 31st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The New York Times and Washington Post are reporting on U.S. policy toward Israel, specifically that, well, quote the New York Times headline, Biden's full backing is now tempered. But when the facts are laid out in the story, I actually don't know how much has changed. I mean, even when Biden was in Israel giving full rhetorical support, he was also privately and publicly cautioning the Israelis saying, quote, justice must be done, but I caution this. While you feel that rage, don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. Okay, so what's different now from when he said that? I don't know. According to the Times, at least, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan issued blunt declarations on Face the Nation. Here was perhaps one. Hamas is using civilians as human shields. They're hiding behind civilians. They're hiding among civilians. They're putting rockets and other terrorist infrastructure in civilian areas. That creates an added burden for the Israeli Defense Forces, but it does not lessen their responsibility to distinguish between terrorists and innocent civilians and to protect the lives of innocent civilians as they conduct this military operation. But that's not different from established practice and policy in the U.S. and Israel knows this. The Times also cited an exchange in which Sullivan, when asked about Israel perhaps attacking a hospital in Gaza, said, quote, hospitals are critical civilian infrastructure under international humanitarian law. Hospitals should not be targeted. They are not military targets. But this was said to be an example of a shift in tone or substance. But not only is it not that, there is no confusion about the status of a hospital within the corridors of power in D.C. or Tel Aviv. Perhaps there's a popular misperception on the legitimacy of the hospital as a military target. Maybe what I'm about to say next will surprise you, but a hospital in general isn't a military target unless combatants set up shop there and fire rockets from there or hide munitions there. And that's what Hamas has reportedly done. The Israelis released footage of a Hamas militant captured after the October 7th attacks. I'm now quoting from The Guardian. One, identified as Amir Abu Awash, a member of Hamas's elite Nakba force, was asked about the connection between hospitals in Gaza and the metro, which is Hamas's extensive underground tunnel network. A handcuffed Awash replied, most of them are hidden in the hospitals. At Shifa Hospital, for example, there are underground levels. Shifa is not small. It's a big place that can be used to hide things. He was then asked by the interrogator about why Hamas was using medical institutions such as hospitals and clinics, to which he answered, so you don't strike them. Under international law, Israel would be permitted to strike them. Ah, but if the results were proportionate, proportionate to the damage or death or military outcome, i.e. eliminating Hamas figures, but that has to be weighed against the harm and death to civilians. And there is no definition of proportionate. It's purposefully subjective. Israelis would define it differently than Americans. A future adjudication in some international criminal body might define it differently than they would. 
But hospitals are not a military target, is in no way a new form of tough talk. It's not a warning. It's not something that the Israelis don't know. And Jake Sullivan knows it's not absolutely true under all circumstance. I remain unconvinced that much has changed in the degree to which Joe Biden backs Israel. What's likely more changed are his consideration about what messages he wants to emphasize and which publics are his intended recipients. On the show today, Dean, the Democratic Challenging Dream. But first, we continue our conversation with Greg Lukianoff, president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, about his new book, The Canceling of the American Mind. Cancel culture undermines trust, destroys institutions, and threatens us all, but there is a solution. It's like a crazy subtitle. It's more of a a promise. Anyway, he tries to deliver, as today we talk about Colin Kaepernick, Milo Yiannopoulos, and if the juice is worth the squeeze, the citrusly inclined Greg Lukianoff up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Greg Lukianoff is back to talk about cancel culture. He's the president of FIRE, and he brings the same substance. Cancel culture was first flat out denied, then it got rebranded by some more or less defenders of it. No, 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 it's consequence culture. It's accountability culture. And I start by asking Greg about a guest whose segment we will air in the near future, who at least was honest enough to say, yeah, there's cancel culture, and it's a good thing. 
So I interviewed a guy named Ernest Owens who wrote a book, The Case for Cancel Culture, and uh, the interview hasn't aired yet. It's sprawling, shall we say. But I do give him credit for at least uh, stopping the gaslighting, telling us, yeah, it's cancel culture. But then he goes on to say, and he's not the only one, okay, call it cancel culture, but it's good. It's a useful tool for activism. So I want you to address that. But before you do, just say, is that at least moving the conversation forward to the point of usefulness? Is that particular framing a little more useful than, no, there's no such thing as cancel culture doesn't exist? Yeah, we, we talk about this actually quite specifically uh, in the book. Uh, so we go through what we call rhetorical fortresses, basically all these BS ways that people get out of having arguments. And we talk about ones that both right and left have, and we call those the obstacle course and the minefield. And then when we get to the left, as I mentioned, we get to the perfect rhetorical fortress, which is just wonderfully complex, and the efficient rhetorical fortress, which is very simple but eliminates most of the people you need to listen to. But on the tactic that everybody uses in the age of social media, one of them is minimization. And it tends to follow this sort of foot-dragging approach of this isn't happening. If it's happening, it's not happening on a big enough scale. Um, uh, oh, this is happening, uh, but it's actually a good thing. And then finally, um, the people who are complaining about this are the real problem. You know, and, and so like he's just on a different step of this tedious little dance that, um, that, that, that we like to do, saying that it's an effective tool of activism. If you mean that you want to create a country where people are afraid to be authentic, and, and afraid to say what they really think. Uh, that's, you know, if, you, if your activism is basically like, I don't want to hear what people really think. I don't want people to be authentic. I, it, I want people to be too scared to actually give their opinions. That's, you know, for, oftentimes these are people who call everybody else fascist. And it's well, kind that's of like, what they would say. They would say, no, I don't want to hear what racists think. I don't want to hear what fascists think. And if we platform the Nazis, we're doing our society harm. They always bring up the Ku Klux Klan. They always bring up the Nazis. And then when you get to, so who are you talking Talking about speaking on your campus, though. Let's get back to the actual person you're talking about. And they're Christine like, Lagarde. <laughs> it's like Ben Shapiro. And I'm like, so you do understand that you just said that he's a Nazi, <laughs> essentially, or morally equivalent to a Nazi. So it, it, as far as like that, that tactic, you know, it's, it's kind of like, the, yeah, it, it, it's... It's good to admit that it happens, the idea to say that it's always good. Here, here, here's my challenge. Read the book and tell me if you think everybody in the book had it coming. I, I'd be shocked if you believe that almost any of them had it coming, um, given how tame a lot of the speech that could get you canceled over the last uh, 10 years. Well, since a lot of your project has been the uh, temporal chronicling of when this happened and you yep. have distinctions between 2014 and 2017, I would say that the acknowledgement, yes, there's cancel culture, but it's good, was only in response to the impossibility of defending forever and ever and ever that there is no cancel culture <laughs> and that no one, that everyone has been canceled as Drew McGarry uh, wrote in a San Francisco, uh, I think, Examiner essay. Everyone who's been canceled yeah, has deserved it. <laughs> so that became impossible to maintain. Yeah. So you had to shift rhetorically. And so we get cancel culture is just a name for righteous activism. Yeah. And, and that's the whole uh, accountability culture dodge um, that we address in the appendix. We actually address some of these Consequence arguments. Consequence culture. What we have to do as a society is invent words with more syllables to describe the phenomenon, and then we get to more yeah. clarity. Everyone knows that. It, it, it's fun to take people that, down the uh, down the path on that one. So what's the consequence? It's like, well, if they get fired for their point of view, I'm like, that's the definition of censorship. Yeah, um, I don't know if you agree with me, but uh, I always point to, and I don't do it rhetorically, I really mean it, and it incensed me. I always t point to the case of Colin Kaepernick as a guy who got canceled. Yeah, absolutely. 
no, totally. Okay, let's apply accountability or consequence culture to him. Yeah. Tell me how that is a correct consequence. I mean, the articulation would be uh, an owner decides that it would be bad for business, but I don't think that the I don't think that the ideology of those who are proposing that consequence culture is the right way to think about it would also say, oh, that's good that an owner incorrectly, I would say, uh, thinks that Colin Kaepernick's going to hurt overall jersey sales. Right. Well, and, and also the, the the biggest mistake the NFL made there was by making you know uh, NFL players stand for the uh, the Pledge of Allegiance in the first place. Compelled it's like, speech. Yeah, it, it, it's compelled speech. And like, and the thing that I always try to like, you're get... you're really an ACLU guy. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, I, I I get people. You know, I worked there in '99. Um, I was like my dream job. It's why I went to law school was to do First Amendment law. And you know, like I, I I'm now lucky that I get to work with the former, you know, exec, the former uh, president of the ACLU, Nadine Strawson. I get to work with the former executive director uh, is on our advisory council, Ira Glasser. And of course, you know, the great, you know, uh, couple time president of the ACLU of Massachusetts, Harvey Silverglade. He's like my dad. Okay. So I want to talk to you about a couple edge cases, but before we get to sure. the edge cases, yep. let's get to a case that's, I don't know, maybe not even approaching the edge. This was the Case of Stanford your Law School, your alma mater, they shouted down a federal judge. And then a dean, the dean who was supposed to assure that he speak, <laughs> Dean Steinbach, intervenes. Yeah. He gives a seven-minute speech and says, uh, is the juice worth the squeeze? Oh, Meaning yeah. we have, sure, we'll give him free speech, but you should really think, is it worth it to upset the audience to hold your views and to express your views? Again, seven minutes, I suppose, in some way, she let him speak. And so here's my question, to be very, again, fair to the dean. I read yeah. her essay in the Wall Street Journal. In a more ideal world, you and I would have liked a dean to say, hey, you children, be quiet or get out. But yeah. that's not the world of colleges in 2022 or 2021. The world of colleges is you have to recognize that there are powerful constituencies at play. Just like I, as a person who's pro-choice, would love the governor of Alabama to say, I believe in a woman's right to choose through yeah. every trimester of her pregnancy. That's not going to happen because of the politics at play. So that is my question. What Steinbeck did was actually better than what a lot of the schools have done, putting aside the seven minutes it took her to do that. Should I look at it? How charitably should I look at, is the juice worth the squeeze? Not at all. Okay. Because, because this is basically like a bunch of people who are saying, um, we're encouraging you to burn down the uh, burn down the house, burn, engage in arson. And then the, like the person after the arson starts happening saying, well, there's nothing we really can do to stop arson. You know, like they've, administrators have created this environment. And when it comes to the, the Dean Steinbach's role in this, they were meeting with her and other administrators, uh, you know, time and time again. Like there were hours of meetings between the protesters and students. Stanford was a place that had had endless numbers of high-profile conservative judges speak there, and conservatives in general. Um, and this was a Fifth Circuit judge. That's that's one level below the Supreme Court. So having him was kind of a big deal. Um, the extent to which there was coordination between the students and, and, and the administrators was made incredibly clear by the fact, well, one, you know, like a, a, a fifth of the class showed up to shout down, um, uh, to, to shout down Kyle Duncan, um, you know, even telling him, like, I hope your daughters get raped. There were administrators, like, in the room who did nothing for that first 10 minutes. It's one of the reasons why I don't hold it against uh, you know, Judge Duncan that he didn't know that she was an administrator when she came up. Um, and then she takes out her prepared speech yeah. that, that is a, a, a long, so it's been 10 minutes, uh, you know, of shout down and then another seven minutes hearing that the juice of free speech isn't worth the squeeze. So when she well, went she asked to us the question, is it worth the squeeze? 
Yeah, and, and, and when she went to the Wall Street Journal and changed that she was trying her de-escalation techniques, you know, it's like, no, you weren't. Like, th- th- this was something that was purposely escalated. This was something that you were that, – that if you clear, care to claim about students, you clearly don't give a damn about the Federal Society students who are there, who, you know, have their faces uh, on posters being called out specifically. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that the, the administrators who organize this kind of stuff or even tolerate it, those are those are jobs that should be on the on the chopping block because right now what we're seeing is uh, and particularly since the you know Hamas attacks like a gen- like we're seeing how bad the atmosphere for dissent has actually gotten on campus like it's only cancel culture that lets you create an environment where everybody just kind of assumes that you have to be pro Hamas. Well, I mean, on campuses uh, left and right, many Jewish groups have protested and yep. there have been counter protests. And so I wouldn't say it's a total chilling of free speech. But back to Steinbach, she was uh, suspended or put on leave or whatever um, bureaucratic verbiage they have around that. And she left. I don't know if she was forced out, but she's gone. She yeah. she resigned. Does that mean that, is that a sign that cancel culture? So overall, in total, is that a sign that, cancel culture is ascendant or not? I've heard a lot about how, uh, largely from the same people who told me cancel culture didn't exist, that cancel culture is now over. And that's well, just- waning. Yeah. To, well, I, I, you know- um, That would be the argument I've heard. Yeah. Well, waning, I mean, I think that this is, there is no way to maintain the kind of intensity that 2020 and 2021 showed. And and when you look at our charts of the of professors getting canceled, you know, uh, it, it's it's this huge peak, like unlike anything over over the last 20 years. Um, the fact that that in schools with such low viewpoint diversity, you can find that many heretics to burn in the first place is is pretty nuts. But what's happened, and and this has been a terrible year for shoutdowns. So the tactics change sometimes. You know, the uh, prof- and when you look at the polling, it, it's I kind of liken it. Sometimes to like the British claiming that they won the Revolutionary War because the Americans had stopped fighting, you know, three years after the peace was signed. It's kind of like, look, it, it's like, no, you won. You, you, all the polling shows that you scared everybody to death. They're 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 watching what they say, and now the next tactic that you move to are shoutdowns, deplatforming, etc. Because this has been a terrible year for deplatforming. We not just the Stanford one. I think at Charlie Kirk at T- Turning Point USA, who and we're, by the way, we're very critical of Turning Point USA for their professor oh, watch the list. The book is full I, of chapters about conservatives who absolutely engage in cancel culture. Absolutely. But th- I think they threw rocks at him like, like w- when he came to speak at a, a campus this year. Riley Gaines, you know, it, it looks like, you know, students, that was a shout down. And even there's a the, claim that someone like swimmer, hit her. The swimmer who uh, went the, to San Francisco the, State University had the cower in a corner. And San Francisco State University, by the way, kind of came out with a good for the students kind of statement. Um, so it's been a terrible year for shoutdowns and deplatforming. Um, so I, I think that, and and I got to tell you, uh, there was a little bit of a lull in cancel culture, and I'd say um, I think there was a statistical lull in deplatforming in 2017. And there was mm-hmm. a guy who I actually have some respect for, but said, "Oh, cancel culture ended last year," and I'm like, 2017 was one of the worst years I'd seen. That that that, that was the Berkeley riots. That was like a just the tactics were different. They they weren't quite the same, and but they were just more spectacular. So, and I got and I do think that things are about in 2024. I would love to be wrong. To be clear, I would love to be wrong. I'm afraid 2024 is going to be a terrible year for cancel culture because when uh, political emotions get that hot, that has become the instinct. 
Is there ever a case for the ethics or efficacy of deplatforming? I am really expansive in my thinking on this kind of stuff. I even have my own idiosyncratic theory on freedom of speech, which is which I call the pure informational theory. And I think that, but I think at the same time, people learning to think like scholars should actually think more like this. They should put their scientist and anthropologist hat on. And if a crazy conspiracy theorist shows up on campus, they should be saying. You know what? We should probably like this is a we should figure out why this crazy person thinks this, because as I make the point, like, listen, if your uncle believes that lizard people or the person you're dating believes that lizard people who live below the Denver airport control the world, he's not right. But knowing that your uncle thinks lizard people control the world is a very important fact to know. So like this level of curiosity on a very scientific level is something that universities should be uh, should be culminating. But should Comcast provide the bandwidth for him to post uh, statements about the lizard people under the Denver airport is the deplatforming argument? I think that when you are uh, trying to battle people who think that there is a conspiracy to shut them up, you should do absolutely nothing that looks like a conspiracy to shut them up. And some of the most interesting data that I keep forgetting to mention that we have in the book talks about how, uh, so, you know, I'm a First Amendment lawyer, but I have a deep interest in social psychology. And one of the more um, established phenomena in social psychology is group polarization. That essentially, if you get like-minded people together, uh, they actually tend to get much more radicalized in the direction of the group, right or left. And and there's tons of experiments on this stuff. We have a chapter on what happened on social media, and we got some great research from the National Containment Research Institute. And unsurprisingly, that when people were kicked off Twitter, you know, uh, uh, in 2017 and again in 2020, they tended to go to places like Gab. And the research indicates that they did indeed get crazily more uh, uh, more radicalized. So it's one of these things where it's not just free speech is good. It's also the unintended harmful effects of censorship. It causes people to talk to just people they agree with. It doesn't change their opinions, of course. And that tends to make them much more, uh, much more radicalized. So, so I think people really have to be like, how bad is it to be kind of like, oh, look, I, there's this nut saying the lizard people are, you know, who, who control the Denver airport are real. Can I be trusted to, to evaluate that and say, well, that's that's insane. And I'm glad that you're raising your hand and telling me you're insane. Am I really safer in a world where that person, uh, where I can't know that that person actually thinks that? I don't think yeah. I am. So Steelman counter is something like this. I mean, here's where I am on that. Uh, originally, I thought the deplatforming argument was a buzzword, and I didn't dismiss it, but it, ne- it seemed more wrong than right. More wrong than right. Then, nine out of ten examples of it, I said, oh, that's not working or it's not correctly applied. Then it became 99 out of 100. Now it's such a vanishingly small uh, sample set where I could say that's one that even did work. I'm, I've come to the conclusion that claims to deplatform, I'm just opposed to them. But I do think... Think about Milo Yiannopoulos. Tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah. This guy had all his social media taken away from him, and it seems like he mostly went away. The reason why he did, though, was by talking about hebophilia, about you know, uh, about uh, b- 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 which is you know being attracted to twelve year olds, but yeah, like pre- so, prepubescent. Right. Like so that's get, what ruined him. He, so based he, on the theory that you can only get canceled by your, your own side, the conservatives yes. gave him up. But he's not really around anymore, is yeah. he? Or is but, he? But, but that gab, wasn't that wasn't it. because of the shoutdown. If you if, if you remember, like after the Berkeley riots, he went on Bill Maher. Like it, it was a huge thing for his, his star was rising until he kind of you know until tapes showing him on, on, in interviews 
who's talking about, you know, having sex with kids is okay. And, and that's really what killed him. So a lot of people will use him as a successful example of canceling. Um, and it's like, yeah, he got canceled by both sides, but it's not, it wasn't the student outrage Adam that did him in. It was um, pissing off conservatives by saying something, you know, kind of repugnant. He did get his access to the platforms taken away and that did hurt him, right? Yeah, that yeah, it did. But I mean, like he 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 keeps popping up, you know, from time to time. He 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 made himself non-credible. You know, it, it, it's the big thing. It, <laughs> but uh, but but Alex Jones didn't. Oh yeah. Well, Alex Jones. I mean, that's defamation. I mean, like that 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 was one of those things where what they went after him for was entirely appropriate. I mean, going after the families claiming that they're making this. Sh- I, I'm from, you know, I I have a friend from from high school who lost a kid um, at Newtown. Um, but if it wasn't defamation, I would not say it. But but in this case. It's like no, you're 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 claiming these people who lost their kids engage in a massive conspiracy to trick the world in order to create gun control. Like his prosecution, in my opinion, because I I believe uh, when it comes to the exceptions to the First Amendment, I think actually a lot of them make uh, make sense. You know, you don't have the right to in, uh, imminent incitement to violence. You don't have a right to engage in true threats, something that reasonably places someone in in fear of bodily harm or death. You don't have the right to claim that. You know, the, the classic example of defamation is saying, "Listen, I know." for a fact that this person's a pedophile. Like that, that like that's something that you can be prosecuted for. I think there should be protections in place, of course. But I, I actually think the New York Times v. Sullivan standard, for example, but also all the, I think the law of defamation in the United States is sufficiently speech protective, but also gets at a really very real problem. Greg Lukianoff is the author of The Canceling of the American Mind. Cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution. He's president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Fire, straight fire. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Mike. That was great. And now the spiel. It's Halloween, and the candidates have donned their costumes. Chris Christie is going as a truth-teller. Vivek Ramaswamy is someone who believes the election was stolen. Well, he wore that costume to school, but now he's donning the costume of someone who believes the election was not stolen when he goes trick-or-treating in his neighborhood. And you know that one kid who always dresses confusingly, so you're saying, wait, maybe that's a costume, maybe that isn't? That is Nikki Haley going as a moderate on abortion. Wait, moderate to who? And as a couple of days ago, Mike Pence decided not to be dressing up for Halloween. So there's a spare costume out there. Who's going to wear it? Well, you know the voice. I, I just uh, told Good Morning America outside that uh, today for Halloween, I'm wearing the costume of a presidential candidate. So I hope you, I hope you like it. You don't know the voice? That was Dean Phillips, Minnesota congressman, campaigning today in New Hampshire. He's running for the Democratic nomination for for president of the United States, and he's wearing the candidate costume. What candidate? Well, not anyone who won. Uh, In the words of Hubert Humphrey, I believe the moral test of a government is how it treats those in the dawn of life, the dusk of life, and in the shadows of life. Hard stop. I think that is the fundamental role of government. Phillips' campaign seems quixotic, which is true, but still, I have to advise him against using that as a slogan on all the signs. It is the kind of campaign that's not getting covered for the idea of it, for the tactics of it, for even the possibility of it. It's the symbolism of it. Phillips at least wants it to represent 
a challenge to Joe Biden. If it even does is a question. Will history say, well, Biden ran unopposed and then and then someone will butt in and says, no, no, it wasn't technically unopposed. There was that one guy, what was his name? Phil Donalds, Dan Philpot. No, wait, Dean Phillips. Oh, yeah. So maybe that's how we'll remember him. But I do have this fear. I want to let you in on my fear. What I do is I sometimes cast my mind ahead to the future, and it is a future where, sadly enough, Joe Biden is not re-elected president and Donald Trump is. And to commit to the exercise that a lot of good strategists, business strategists usually, but what they do is they say, all right, tell me what went wrong. Now tell me the story of this failure. Go back, tell me the story of this failure, and that way you flesh out the dangers that are around you in the present. So come along with me. We're in the future. Donald Trump Grover Cleveland's it and is elected president again, or as he would argue for the third time. He's sworn in on work release from the Charles D. Hudson Transition Center in LaGrange, Georgia. We must ask ourselves why, how'd this happen? And some smart guy will say, I mean, how do you guys think Biden would win? If he were to have won, he'd have done it with the lowest approval ratings of any incumbent one year before an election. Why didn't you do anything about that? Well, we'd say because clever people like the host of Meet the Press said things like this. If you look back in time, historically speaking, presidents who get primary challengers, and here you have it, uh, Gerald Ford to Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, Ted Kennedy, George H.W. Bush, Pat Buchanan, all went on to lose. This might, this must be giving Democrats some jitters. Well, smart guy would say, didn't you realize that it's not the challenge to the incumbent that makes the incumbent unpopular? It's the incumbent being unpopular that brings the challenge? Well, yeah, they realized that, but they still thought, all right, if you have to choose between getting a challenge for Biden and that weakening him a little or not getting a challenge, they're going to go with not a challenge. A challenge is never good. Yes, we say in our dialogue, because challenges are against incumbents who are not doing good. They're not doing well. All right, let's not labor that point again. We might say, well, you know, there's never been an example of an embattled incumbent Democrat winning after a challenge. All right, and how many examples do we have to choose from? Two! You got two Democrats who got a challenger, Carter, and then LBJ didn't even run again. But then again, you had in the Republicans, you got George H.W. Bush, you got Gerald Ford. So really, we're up to four pretty solid examples. Four times, incumbent gets a challenger, incumbent loses. All right, all right, all right, I get that, four times. How about the times... An unpopular incumbent didn't get a challenger. Did that guy lose? Well, come on, how often does... It just happened! I'm describing what happened with Trump. Okay, okay, okay. But challenge incumbent, that guy always loses. We could go back to that. No, not always. Truman was almost defeated at a convention. So Joe Biden, with an approval rating in the 30s, wasn't challenged because people's idea of history didn't go back more than 12 elections. And of the 12 elections that were applicable examples, six unpopular incumbents, four got challenged and lost, and two didn't fit the pattern, and everyone just thought, let's risk it. With Donald Trump out there looming? Well, yes. Yes, that's what we thought. And that's the decision that we made. Or that was made. For us. To us. Now listen. 
This is not a clarion call to get behind the Dean Phillips campaign on the steel sharpened steel theory. Maybe it's more like gelato glogs up a catapult theory. Well, as I'll let you behind the curtain a little bit, I was going for an antiquated weapon that's a little creaky, and the fact that Dean Phillips made a fortune selling the Talenti brand gelato to Unilever. Did you know that? Well, now you do. The point is that what is going on here with Joe Biden on the glide path to the renomination is not clearly the best strategy if the mission is the defeat of Donald Trump. I do not blame the Biden team for wanting to clear the field. I also don't credit the Biden team for being so intimidating that they scared away stronger challengers like Governors Newsom, Pritzker, Whitmer, Polis, Wolf, or Secretary of Transportation Buttigieg. Maybe those guys were just opportunistic scaredy cats to begin with. Although maybe if we're being generous, we can say that one small measure of Team Biden's savvy and adeptness is that they convince these otherwise attractive candidates that they'd be walking into a buzzsaw, an octogenarian buzzsaw. And either Dean Phillips didn't sense the sharpness of that blade, or maybe only Dean Phillips thinks he can diagnose the oxidation or help shake off the rust. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer, Michelle Pesca. She counts a lot of questions. She runs things around here. Not going to say with a, an iron fist or a sharpened blade, but yeah, couldn't do it without her. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>